and welcome. My name is Jolene, and unfortunately, Emma will not be joining us today. She has been feeling under the weather, and we want her to rest up and take care of herself so that she can come back to us better than ever. This week, however, I am joined by another costume designer who not only designed our fabulous logo, but is my best friend, Jen Pinkos. Hi, everyone. And we are still two costume designers whose shared love of horror and fashion history have brought us together to deep dive the horror genre, going behind the scenes to uncover, understand, and analyze iconic horror characters and costumes that are simply to die for. So on today's episode, Jen and I both got our start in theater, so we thought, It would be super fitting if we took a look at the history, chat about some of our favorite horror musicals, and then what it's like designing for the stage versus the screen. So a little bit of a history here. Um, Musicals have been around for quite a while. I'm not going to sit you through the theater classes that Jen and I had to sit through in college, but long story short, in the early, in the mid 1800s we had this gothic literature rise so we had frankenstein we had dracula and all of those did become adapted for the stage so you had plays of frankenstein you had plays of dracula you had turning of the screw which is a ghost story a christmas carol is actually classified as a gothic horror novel despite the fact that it takes place during christmas time um so as these shows were becoming more popular as we ventured into from the 19th century into the 20th century, Americanized theater became more prevalent. So these were primarily done in Europe prior to this. In the 20th century, we have the rise of American theater and musicals are primarily an American thing. And they've started here while London has the West End. um, There are theaters around the world that do musicals. Musicals got their start here in New York on Broadway. Um, And we do have some plays that have inspired some well-known horror that um, you guys listening will probably know. So the new Bly Manor series that came out, Jen, did you see that? I did. I did see it. So that was based on Turning of the Screw, which was a play. Um, And I actually had to read that for grad school too. So I was curious how they were going to adapt it. And it was a loose adaptation. And And of course, Bly Manor had some other story elements to it as well. And then we also have The Woman in Black, which is a 1983 horror novel that was adapted for the stage in 87. And then it was then made into a film in 2012 with Daniel Radcliffe. So that was a straight play. So a lot of the times, though, when horror movies get made into musicals or there are musical horror movies, um, they are much more campy. They are much more... um, horror adjacent and their parodies and their spoofs on these uh like so turning of the screw and woman in black are serious ghost story plays and then musicals i think because they are inherently campy already (laughs) even the serious ones i mean there is a camp to rent let's let's get real yeah let's let's be serious i feel like the campiness of the horror musical um is what allows you to feel comfortable with it i was looking at getting ready for this, looking at different horror musicals on YouTube. And someone had commented on one of them being like, why are we turning all of these horror films into musicals? We have Carrie, we have Heathers, we have Evil Dead, we have Little Shop, we have Reefer Madness. Like, why do we feel the need to do this? Like, this person was so disgusted by it. And all of the comments were just a riot talking about, like, well, I mean, how can you take something like Evil Dead seriously anyway? Why would you not put this to music? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what we see as horror 
movie musicals start to develop and and they develop for the stage. I think the only serious ones we have are, I would say, Sweeney Todd and Phantom of the Opera. Those are more like romance stories. They're more based in those gothic literatures. Yeah. And I think when you think of those more of, they're almost, they are musicals, but they're slightly different to me because they are um, almost operettas. Right. So you have a little different segment. You can look at it more in that way. And then you can look at things like the Shining Opera or (laughs) (laughs) things like that. These exist outside of musicals, but there's something special about like going into that like moment. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, and we could totally talk about this further, but I think anything Andrew Lloyd Webber does is quite a fever dream. Let's forget. (laughs) He is the man who wrote Cats. Musical about cats. <laughs> I mean, that is the top horror musical to talk about. <laughs> oh my god, I have not seen the film uh, because just seeing anthropomorphic animals with human hands real creeped me out. <laughs> I saw the uh, the original stage film. Okay, as a six year old, a friend sat me down and tried to get me to watch it. In the first five minutes, I was like, "Mom, help me." <laughs> <laughs> and that was such a big deal on Broadway in the 90s, too. I remember watching, I think it was my Wizard of Oz VHS or one of my musical VHSs that had, like, a behind-the-scenes, like, with the, oh, well, the cats all love it. And then, like, you saw, like, a like a video of the cats on stage and then the cats out the stage door chatting with children. And, like, it was a huge thing. No, that's what no, my are made of. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's dive right in. Um, we're not necessarily going in chronological order. And most of these, when we talk about um, the stage year, we're referring to Broadway opening. Um, there's a couple of them that obviously didn't have their openings on Broadway and never will see Broadway, unfortunately. Um, but for most of the films, so just for you guys for reference, when we say stage, we're saying Broadway unless noted otherwise. That's a little asterisk. So I mean, let's just jump into this. Is Jen and I one of Jen and I's favorite musicals? We unfortunately have never seen it together. We talk about it all the time. <laughs> we base our life around this musical. We will see it together one day. Um, but everybody's favorite, the piece de resistance when you think of horror movie musical, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, blessings upon us all as we talk about Frankenfurter. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, yeah. So let's dive right in. So what is your experience, Jen, with this musical? Uh, this musical, I mean, Joe, you know, this has such a special place in my heart. Um, I unfortunately had a very, like, I don't want to say closeted, but I was not raised in horror films necessarily. My parents are very conservative. So I didn't see it until college. And I watched it alone not alone I watched it with one friend in my dorm room in the middle of the day on like a Tuesday and went what the heck just happened <laughs> and immediately turned back to it like two days later because I was fascinated and I've been fascinated since then um something that's always on in the background I'm obsessed with the soundtrack but I had the great fortune of working on the show at the Bucks County Playhouse in New Hope Pennsylvania If you don't know them, look them up. They're a magical, magical place. I treasure them. Um, But the biggest difference that I think is noted to talk about is there are two very different camps when you're talking about Rocky Horror. So you're talking about, I guess, three, because you're talking about people who love the film. They love the film as a standalone. 
And then you talk about the Rocky Horror Picture Show, where, which I unfortunately have only seen once. Um, so you go to a theater, you sit down, and there are actors acting out the movie in front of the movie. Um, I had a very special encounter in Norfolk, Virginia that I don't care to talk about again. <laughs> yeah. um, it was it was something else. And then uh, when I worked at the Bucks County Playhouse, I had the great fortune to work on the Rocky Horror Show, which is this stage adaptation. I guess it's not the adaptation um, of the sh- of the show. So it originally was a stage show with Richard O'Brien, and then it was made into the film, which is how we all got to know it. Um, so I have had the fortune of working on it two times. I was the wardrobe mistress for it one year and immediately fell in love. It is the craziest journey that you will ever have uh, <laughs> working backstage at that show, literally like standing up against a wall and like holding your breath in as people run past you. Um, I also worked with the most amazing team of people I think I will ever work with. Um, and I would include both casts that I've worked with in one grouping because they were all just the most lovely humans. Um, and then I was the associate costume designer for it in, I guess, 2018. Um, so if you don't, if you're not in theater, like Joe and I have been, and you don't know what an associate is, um, on most things you have your costume designer and you have your, sometimes you'll have an assistant designer, not always, um, if you're lucky or have enough money, you can have an assistant and a very good friend of mine, uh, Nikki Moody, who has been the costume designer for several Bucks County productions. She and I had a really great friendship. They were reviving the show and she knew I knew it very well. So I, as her associate, was basically her stand-in. Um, so adjacent costume designer. Right, because she wasn't there with you the whole process, yeah. right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. We went through one or two fittings together and I basically took over there, took over from there for her. Which is just shows the adaptability that we have as wardrobe people, as costume people. Um, most of us do come up through the ranks and we start as dressers, we start as seamstresses, but um, to be able to adapt in that way and to, to work with another designer in that capacity and basically be a stand-in but not so like fulfilling her vision and keeping to her vision, but keeping the eyes on the ground. So you're juggling all of these parts. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> being an associate, I think has been the hardest job I ever had because we also had an associate director at the time. Um, and Greg was the assistant director for several years. And actually the team who directed um, Rocky Horror all of the designers and directors were working on an off-Broadway show, which was why all of us as assistants got promoted to associates because we basically got the baby handed to us, which was amazing. (laughs) But as an associate, that's right. You have to hold the vision of the original piece. Um, When you go see Phantom today on Broadway, it looks exactly the same as it did when it opened. And that is the job of the associate to keep something – I don't want to say modern, keep it relevant, but still hold the original vision. Keep your directors happy. Keep your actors happy, especially when you have big names. 
um, but also keep your designer happy so they'll hire you again. Yeah. And that's, and we're going to speak on this a lot with these musicals is that when you are adapting something specifically from film, a wider audience already has a preconceived notion in their brain of, of what these characters, especially beloved characters, will look like. But because theater will put up shows so rapidly and so frequently you'll do revivals not just on Broadway but in regional theaters and community theaters you have to keep it fresh for the designer so there are multiple tellings of like say something like Oklahoma that look totally different from the movie but people might have this idea of what they think it looks like in their head so when they come to the theater that's probably not what they're getting. The only show that I've seen that with where from stage to screen and each iteration, the costumes have been the same is a chorus line. And I'm mm. wondering if, if it's because that one was based on real people. I think it's also a similar design team that did the original yeah. film and the original Broadway. Um, I do think too, you have such specific moments. Like I know in college, I designed Alice in Wonderland treasure and there were so many things I wanted to do. And if you look at like the original illustrations, she's in yellow, she's in red, she's in white, she's in all these different things. But Disney has set such a standard. Right. So there are certain things. I was even thinking about that, like Little Shop. Little Shop, you know you're going to see Seymour in a sweater vest and some chunky glasses that are probably broken. Yep. You have an idea, but it's not so specific like Adam's family, where if Morticia doesn't come out in that wiggle dress with a train, right? Or Wednesday in her braids, like it's so it's that's one of the hard things of as a designer is how much pop culture already exists around right. this thing. Right. And so the original Rocky Horror was a stage production in 73. And then when it was only with um Richard O'Brien, it had Little Nell as Columbia still. It had um Patricia Quinn as Magenta and Tim Curry as Frankenfutter. So those are the four original cast members that came with the film. So costume designer Sue Blaine um, wasn't a big fan of wanting to work on the film until she became aware that Tim Curry was working on the film because they were friends um, and she loved working with them. But she didn't really pull – it was half and half, she was saying. So some of the costumes came from the stage play. Columbia's costume is completely different from screen to stage. And I'm curious what that looks like. But now when you see like a stage play, and I'm curious for your adaptation of it, because I've seen the stage version, which is the musical on stage, no screen. I've seen obviously the movie in my house. And then I've seen the one where you play the movie and you have the shadow cast and you have the props and everything like that. Um, I remember the magenta in the one that I saw on stage was vastly different. It was a very different type of maid. She looked more like a bellhop. Um, so there were some liberties that were taken with the stage adaptation versus the shadow cast just replicating the costume for the movie. Yeah. I've heard the shadow cast almost, and I don't mean this in any way to sound like negative, almost more as cosplayers at this point. Right. Because they're so, like, the art of copying these costumes to replicate on a monthly or weekly basis is just beautiful. Um, our cast, every time I've done the show, because we, and I think we had more liberty because we weren't the picture show. Right. Um, because we were just the stage adaptation. Our set was vastly different, um, which, I mean, also is the nature of a stage production, right? You can only do so much. And our costumes were vastly different. Pretty much 
which I think also helped me as a designer to look at things differently. But our Frankenfurter had a purple wig. So every time I've done the show, every I think Bucks has had in the six or seven years they've done it, they've had four Frankenfurters. Um, and they've all had a purple wig. They've all had a red sparkle corset. They've all had basically a black Speedo. They've all had fishnets, high heels. Um, but the one fun thing for me was personality-wise, slightly customizing that per person. So I worked with the very, very lovely Mason Alexander Park. Um, they are just a, a treasure. And Mason and I had talked about their Frank was much more effeminate. Mason has played Frank several times. Um, so when Nikki had worked on the show, our Frank always had shorter hair or very spiky hair. Or I, I feel like every time we did the show, there was a different, there was a different hairstyle. And Mason had said to me, "I would love like a Farrah Fawcett blowout." Like, oh my gosh! Great, let's do it. Like why? That. Why the fuck not? Um, but everyone else in our cast was very different. Uh, our when I was associate, our Columbia was very different. Our Magenta was very different. Our riffraff was basically in a trench coat the whole show. Hmm. Um, just vastly different, but it was so it was so much fun. I think the only other thing that held true to the movie was the ascot. Because you have to. Oh, of course. <laughs> you have to so that you can say, where the fuck is your neck? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And brought, like, of course, Brad's in some whitey tighties because right. why not? Right. Um, Janet was in pink because the innocence of her character. But right. looking at those things that are scriptural versus prescribed by the film, um, it is just – it's such a fun thing to have such fun with. Yeah. And that's what you find with a lot of stage adaptations. And I feel like a lot of horror fans, because we love these characters um, and we there are specific things, and we talk about this a lot on the podcast, that are specific things that we want. But as designers, as just people in theater too, just to keep it fresh for a new audience, there will be changes or modifications to some things because you do have to understand that this is being created and being uh, given to you by different artists, not the original artists that created this. So we never want to rip off those original artists. We want to pay homage and we want to put up on a pedestal what has come before us when it comes to these horror mu musicals. So that's why I think it's a um, theater isn't always people's first go-to. Also, it is expensive. It's it's not as accessible as seeing a film too for in some instances. Yeah, and, true. Um, but I do I hope that like whoever is listening out there, I hope that if you're not a horror movie musical fan, I hope this inspires you to like maybe, you know, once Broadway opens, uh, we're waiting for that. <laughs> um we're all gonna all the listeners of this podcast together, we can all just yeah. fill out a little shop. Uh, playing when it opens in September. Oh, please do because I let's all right. Let's dive into Little Shop then because I love Little Shop horrors. Um, so the first one is a '60s. It's from 1960. It is a black and white horror film. Uh, just a straight, you know, film. And then it was 
adapted for the stage in 1982. It was off Broadway. And then from there, it was adapted into the 1986 movie musical. So it was a musical off Broadway. And then, um, so also for non-theater listeners, um, when we say Broadway versus off-Broadway, they are still playing in New York. The only difference, and it's not the street, it's the theater size. So when you have a theater that is um, like zero to 50, it's off-off-Broadway. So that's stuff that you're going to find in the village. That's like the weird Saved by the Bell musical that I found in St. Mark's Place in like 2015. Um, And then from like 50 to about 198, I believe it is, is an off-Broadway show. And then from 200 plus is going to be a Broadway show. So off-Broadway just means it's in a smaller theater. Um, But it still has the same amount of recognition. It still has the same amount of weight in the theater community. Um, It's just the theater size. So there's my little, there's my little spiel on that. So same amount of talent and work. Exactly. Oh gosh. And let me tell you, these people work. So when you're making a film, you're working in maybe six to eight week bursts, probably more if it's a bigger project. I know those Marvel movies take, you know, months at a time and you're working long, grueling hour days and those people work hard as well. But when you're working in theater, you are doing 32 shows a week. So I'm sorry. Yeah. 32 shows. No, wait. Eight shows a week. Yeah, right, 32 shows a month. Oh, my gosh. And Very excited. I was very excited. Come back. <laughs> We're doing 32 shows a week. No, oh, God. And you're doing two shows on Wednesday, two shows on Saturday. So the, your cast and your crew are – well, your cast is singing, dancing, acting eight shows a week off on Mondays. And your crew is performing their crazy duties eight shows a week off on Monday. So we, I, and I've, I've, I'm come from off Broadway and I can tell you, we only get one day off a week, but we love what we do. But just to show you the difference of like, once you wrap a film, that's it. Broadway keeps going. And of course there are stand-ins. Of course there are understudies. If somebody's sick, you're not going to like be penalized. But a lot of people, a lot of actors specifically don't like to take days off or, or they'll sucker through it if they're sick because There have been instances where your understudy goes on and there happens to be somebody in the audience that night and that Sutton Foster is the perfect example. It was one night her, the lead was sick. Sutton Foster was the understudy. Sutton Foster is now that much more famous than that poor woman who was sick for one night. I won so many good stories about Sutton. Let me tell you. Oh my God. Perfect example. Perfect example. I was working on a show um, with a few Broadway people, like a few people who've been in the business for longer than, I don't want to say longer than I've been alive. Cause I don't want to hurt their feelings, but a decent <laughs> amount of time. And we had a show where halfway through the show, one of our actors came backstage and wardrobes, basically like mom yeah. Joe can attest to this. I, the youngest person backstage and here are some, some grown men being like, mom, help me. Um, and actor coming back to me and like, mom, I think, I think other actor on stage had a heart attack. I thought, I think Ian had a heart attack and me going to him being like, what can I get you? He's like, my cue. And he (laughs) walked right back on stage. I was like, what is happening? And instead of cancel the show for his own health, he was like, no, I want to continue. It's we were were on closing night. He was like, I want to close the show. I was like, this is, this is not Yes, it's important, but you've been doing this for a month and a half. We yeah. need we need to call the doctor. This is a problem. Yeah. I mean, theater theater people will go down with the ship, which is a curse and a blessing because 
we love what we do and there is nothing that compares to live theater because even when you're just working backstage there i mean there is just nothing that feels like the pacing of a quick change or getting something right or making that cue or whatever but um we do get paid significantly less than film that's the realities of it um a lot of the times a lot of what we do goes unnoticed. I mean, this last year was the perfect example was Jen and I could not work the whole year because theater was closed and I lost my job off Broadway. She lost, I thankfully, I literally saw her show like a day before lockdown in New York. <laughs> what actually ended up being our closing night. We right. A week and a half early. Thank God you and I had tickets. We walked into the show not knowing. I know. We had no idea. We were like, okay, well, maybe this will be, you know, like a month or two. But our lives depend on putting people in the seats. And we weren't taken care of this year, unfortunately, by because there's nobody, and, and I mean, this is a rant for another day, but there is nobody in government sitting on an arts council and people are trying to change that because artists of any capacity, not just for theater, music and writers and filmmakers, we aren't looked at as like doctors and lawyers are. And I mean, I don't do the work of a doctor and a lawyer, but you know, we do a lot of work. So we do, we do a lot of work and this will, I'm going to make this comment and then we'll, we'll continue about Little Shop of Horrors (laughs) Um, because what else is better than talking about a plant that eats people? Right. But um, a, a very fair point is yes, we don't do the work we quote unquote don't do the work of doctors and lawyers, but in this past year, people consumed more television, more art. And that was what saved us in quarantine. And without all of these people, what would you have? Without all of these Broadway actors, you wouldn't have bootlegs of these musicals. (laughs) musicals. Um, And even in things like, I know when Hamilton came to Disney Plus last year, a big conversation was happening of, yes, these people got paid, but are they getting, is the cast getting paid per view now that people can stream this on Disney? Right. Yeah. So because they got paid for the one night of filming, but are they continuing to get paid? Unlike film actors who get paid rights. Right. And they get the residuals from that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, support your local theater artist, um, you know, so that they don't we'll love you for it. Yeah, so that they don't sit with a little cup on the sidewalk <laughs> next time you go to New York City. <laughs> no, I think I think when Broadway comes back in the fall, we're hoping that it does. It, it is slated to open, and tickets are on sale for for different shows and stuff like that. So I do hope that um that the working class artists also get the same opportunities as some of these bigger shows that are going to come back. So. But yeah, but a big plan, which is, I mean, Mr. Mushnick kind of treated Seymour unfairly as well, just <laughs> like these artists have been treated. And I have to say his name like Audrey, because there is, a, I think that is another canon that every high school, when every high school does um, Little Shop of Horrors, you have that one actress that just can belt that one like senior or junior that just <laughs> has the belt that is also trying to replicate the the Brooklyn accent from the movie. Oh, I, I miss the Mushnick. <laughs> how many times in high school theater did we try to become the character actress? Because I know that was me <laughs> before I found my calling in costumes. Just be like, I grew up with this movie. This is who I can be. Right. This is who I am. Help me. <laughs> uh, 
So good. I unfortunately, and this needs to be remedied very yeah. soon because I've been telling my youngest a story. We'll see it for the past 10 years. Um, I've never seen the black and white film. <gasps> I, know, okay. I know. I haven't. We'll watch it. <laughs> um, I grew up on the 82 film though. I think I that's the reason I have a phobia of the dentist is because of Steve Martin in his portrayal. <laughs> um. <laughs> and he's so good in that film. And I, I have a huge crush on Steve Martin, but seeing him with black hair, I'm like, oh, okay, another level. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> I've seen it on stage a few times mm. only as high school casts because I feel like that's who does the show the most. Yeah. And I am absolutely dying to see this latest revival. I really wish I had seen um, Hunter Foster when he was in his prime in in the 90s. But I don't know how much you've seen about, was it Seattle Company? I guess before quarantine started, had Audrey, instead of a puppet, played as a drag queen, which I, like, as someone who has built puppets, feel like my art is being attacked but also like what better choice is there than to have a fabulous drag queen play oh absolutely Audrey too that's a version I would love to see so the off-Broadway version that uh came back in 19 in the fall I was actually supposed to work on um but couldn't because I had another job at the time and I felt bad leaving that job now I don't feel bad but I should have I should have left and I should have you should have left I know (laughs) But that's okay. But I know I've never seen a stage adaptation of um, – I've only seen the 86 movie of, of the musical. I <sighs> knew a guy in Florida. I worked with a man in Florida who actually made the Audrey Two puppets. So you always have that one person that you can go to in your state or community that is like, I've perfected how to make Audrey Twos and has every one of them from the little ones up to the big ones. And I think Frank Oz in the, in the film just did such a brilliant job – Oh my God, that puppet is incredible. And do you know about the alternative ending to the movie? I do. I do know about the alternative ending. Because I was going to say the screen version and the stage version are vastly different. They are vastly different. uh, Not vastly different up until the beginning, but there is a lot of great numbers that are not in the film version that are in the stage version. Before you continue, I just want to say that um, a lot of the times when a movie is a movie first and then it goes to the stage – to be nominated for a Tony, you do have to add extra musical numbers so, or vice versa for the Oscars. So that's why you'll get a different soundtrack, Broadway versus movie. I did not know that. Yeah. I learned that because of Frozen. Ah, uh, well, Frozen. Um, <laughs> I do have to say, while I kind of prefer the music to the show, mm-hmm. My favorite number, and I can't think of the title, and I want to sing it, but I also don't want to sing it for (laughs) your benefit. Um, The number where the three ladies are up on the roof in the sparkly red dresses is my favorite number, and it is not in the stage adaptation, and it is my favorite. Um, But I love that, and I think this is where, like we were talking about before, why all of these horror movies, horror adjacent movies get turned into musicals. I, and talking about wanting to have that levity to them and then talking about little shop because spoiler alert, skip the next (laughs) two minutes. If you don't want to hear this, (laughs) if you you don't seen this in the last 35 years, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) sorry, sorry about it. 
Um, the stage show, Audrey dies. Uh, the stage show, every everyone dies and the yes. plant takes over. And I love that they filmed that originally as the original ending and screened it. Yes. And then audiences went, no, 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 no. <laughs> We're all, we are all about a man-eating plant, but you've pushed it too far. <laughs> I think once you put Rick Moranis in the role of Seymour – Nobody wants to see Rick Moranish perish because he's just such a beautiful human being. So, like, how could you kill him? You can't. You can't. You can't kill him. Exactly. Couldn't do it in Ghostbusters. Couldn't do it in Little Shop. He is timeless. (laughs) I love him so much. That end song, though, in the stage adaptation, when the plant takes over, I think is just, like, it is the best campy end to, like, Howard Ashman, Alan Menken, thank you for what you gave us about, uh, it just, we're taking over this theater, like, (laughs) magic. It's absolute magic. What I love about that show is, like you were saying, because Jen is an amazing puppet maker holy crap and puppeteering is also a very underappreciated art form like when people think of puppets they think of the muppets but there are so many other forms of puppeteering that happens that it's not just a felt puppet i mean and you could definitely speak to more of this but it is such a lost art form and it's very underappreciated there i love that we are having this renaissance of puppeteering right now yes it, it just um I, sorry, I was having a side thought of also, a, have you seen, okay, quick side side conversation. This is what happens when you do a podcast with your best friend. <laughs> <laughs> Not that Emma isn't, but like Jen and I have known each other for longer, so we get super sidetracked on everything. <laughs> this might be three hours. Um, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I was watching, because I had never seen it until I watched half of it today before we started filming this. I was watching Repo, the genetic opera. Oh my God. We could totally talk about that next. So many feelings. Um, But I, so I only got halfway through it because my boyfriend wouldn't stop talking before he left the house to go to bowling. (laughs) So I didn't get to start it. And I had trouble picking what I wanted to watch when he left the house. But I got to the moment where she is singing to her dad and she goes like super like emo rock star in her bedroom. Yeah. I don't know how many times you've watched it. So for my first viewing, the f- all I'm going to say is all I could think about was why is she wearing this top where I can see more skin than I care to of a 17-year-old? And also, why are there puppets in the background? What What's happening? Her stuffed animals are singing? Right. What is going on? Um, so just also side note. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, puppets. I also didn't know. So I have a friend. I'm going to give a shout out to him. His name is Patrick Weedman. He is also an amazing puppeteer. Um, apparently, there are puppet slams, like poetry slams, where you could go up open mic nights with your puppet. And obviously, you're not doing slam poetry, but you just perform as a puppeteer. And I really want to be a part of this because there's a great photo of him on Facebook this past Halloween doing a puppet slam as Vincent Price. I need it. I also like, I need to go and I need to make you a puppet. Cause while I love making them, I am the worst puppeteer. <laughs> like my mouth and brain do not my mouth and brain, my <laughs> mouth and hand, right. brain and hand do not work at the same speed. Okay. And for how many puppeteers I've worked with and how many people I've seen trained, to be beautiful puppeteers, yes, I cannot do it. Here's a great idea. I think we should do a watch along for the the fans because 
I think I think we have fans. I think we have a little bit of fans. Um, come fall, Muppets Haunted Mansion, Puppets Haunted Disney. Disney. I, I mean, this might be your selling point. Uh, this is when I, I uh, spe- speaking of Frozen, worked on two productions of Frozen in the past two years with various theater companies and built Olaf's for them. And I really hope neither of those companies are listening to this podcast when they hear me say, in order to christen both, both of these Olaf puppets, um, my neighbors can attest to Olaf and I singing, um, <laughs> oh my gosh, and now I can't think of the song title, but basically singing Rocky Horror together in my kitchen. That's amazing. So <laughs> what can you, what can you do? Olaf and Jen, it's a, so you want to watch long, I can give you that. Yeah, we can do like a puppet costume perspective on Muppets Haunted Mansion because I'm sure yes. they're going to look fabulous because Miss Piggy always looks fabulous. I mean, if she is not in a Bride of Frankenstein costume, it's a missed opportunity. Exactly. Or <laughs> um, the bride in the attic, the axe bride. Yes. Yeah. Or Elvira. Yeah. She could host it. Okay. Yeah. Lots of ideas. We're going to just call Disney. Yeah. We're going to call Disney. We're going to call Cassandra Peters. We have a great idea. Well, okay, let's stay in the 80s then. So let's go to another famous stage to screen adaptation. You saw this. I couldn't get up there to see this with you, and I am kicking myself. But Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. And it's Jen's favorite movie on the entire planet. It's one of my favorite films, too. I mean, top top five. Right. Shining. Silence of the Lambs. Perfect. Also within this. Beetlejuice. And probably the two Adam Stanley movies. Yeah. Not in any specific order. Um, let's just talk about... I am so... So I got to see it in DC. It was... It was a preview performance, right? Uh, I think technic- I, technically because it was DC. But we didn't see it in like DC previews. Okay. Because um, we saw it a month. I guess... I guess all of DC was considered previews. Yeah. Um, I did not get to see it in New York, and I am kicking myself. Oh, I am too. I am too, because now it's not coming back to Broadway when everything reopens. And I think I think that's a big I think that's a big misstep. I would be shocked with the fan following that just the musical has. I I will be very saddened if no one else picks it up or if it's yeah. not revived soon. Yeah. I am very glad that I got to see the DC version though, because I know a lot of the changes that happened mm-hmm. when they went to New York. So there were a lot of things we saw that we would not have seen in New York. Um, Was like it the same cast. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We saw the oh, we saw the original cast. Um, Alex Brightman, fantastic. He is like a behemoth on stage. He is fantastic a stage manager who i worked with worked with him i think she went to college with him she was like i would have never she's like he's very talented would have never guessed that people would be writing shows for him (laughs) if you have never seen any clips of beetlejuice just go into youtube and search the 2019 tony montage that they did because he is incredible his timing his breath in the Perfect. way he speaks. It's just incredible. Yeah. You've never listened to, okay, to go off of that, listen to the original soundtrack if you have not. Mm-hmm. The opening song, the humor in it, the humor in the musical altogether is hilarious. Right. They immediately acknowledge this is not the film. This is very different. They're like, here's the source material. We're going away from it. And it hits you so quickly, but the timing and the brilliance of the wording. And like, I don't 
think I've ever laughed so hard to hear him singing this like rock song and then someone throwing a ukulele up from the pit and him catching it to sing that bit. And then it it just, yeah, he's brilliant. Sophia Caruso, she was wonderful. I feel like a very unpopular opinion in saying this. In DC, she was blonde as Lydia, and I preferred it. Interesting. Okay. I felt like you lost her a lot less on stage. Okay. Um, yes, because the set is really dark. The lighting concept is quite dark and moody because it's it's playing off of that graveyard color palette. There's a lot of greens, a lot of purples. So I lots of lots of green, lots of purple. But I mean, let's just talk about William Ivy Long, like. One, whoever thought William Ivy Long would be designing Beetlejuice, yeah, I would have never guessed, and I would never have thought I'd see such perfection. <laughs> like, absolutely. And I also want to to say that William Ivy Long, while he is a brilliant designer, um, has had some allegations come out him against him in the the last few years within the theater community. So we are speaking solely to his work when we are talking about him, um, and his designing. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Um, His designs and the work of the team that he worked with. Which he has an incredible team. Incredible. Just the amount of detail that went into those costumes and what I, and I think like Beetlejuice is the prime example of taking what you would expect to see and not quite modernizing it, but making it accessible to a modern audience. Yes. So you see Lydia and I mean, Winona Ryder, lovely, perfect. She's a godsend. You know that perfect black lace dress that she has in the movie and just everything she wears, taking that to a modern audience the silhouette was very modern, but it still had the same feeling. So she was familiar, but not a copy. Right. And for something like that on stage where you might not be sitting right in front of her, that original dress that Aggie Guard Rogers designed for her in the film, Winona Ryder is a very small person. So she doesn't get lost because you're on film, but on stage, somebody of that stature would get consumed by all of that material very quickly. And that's, I mean, just to talk about the difference between stage and film, right? The amount of detail and the things you have to do. If you saw a stage dress in person, you'd be like, that is ugly as sin. Yep. (laughs) And what, I mean, to speak to that, when we saw it in DC, we were sitting halfway up the mezzanine. So we were sitting in the balcony, so not close at all. And for how much detail you could see from that far back in the nosebleed section was amazing. Yeah. The, The thing that was so good about that musical was giving you things like that, giving you moments that were so familiar, but then also pushing you a little bit. Yeah. So I, and I can't speak to, <clears throat> excuse me, New York. And I wish I had seen his character. I'm obsessed with Otho. And I can't remember who played him. Kevin, he was in SpongeBob the musical. Lovely gentleman. Um, he played Otho and his character, his costume was so, I don't want to say sci-fi. It felt very like Dr. Evil to me, like oh. very, I guess I'll say sci-fi where it wouldn't have fit in the film, but in this world that they created that was lifted from the film, it worked so well. Talking about Delia Dietz. Yeah. Her costume and even the characterization that they give her in the musical is so is so good 
in such a modern way that I don't think would have fit in the original film. And I like that they didn't try to copy who Catherine O'Hara was in the film because she in herself is a tour de force and an amazing performer and can wear two gloves wrapped around her head like a freaking hat and rock it. <laughs> so I do like that they that they took their own liberties with her as a character. And, and that, that probably, I mean, we, we talk about this as far as designers go where you want to homage but you also don't want to copy but you want to keep the same so you're you're trying to juggle all these hats i mean actors do the same thing to be compared and to be playing a role that you know a very prolific actor has done prior to you i I mean i can assume that that's that's a lot big shoes to fill so like how do you make this your own how do you make it your own version of this and that's what these musicals are trying to do yeah i think also with all of these horror films that have been around for so long the longer something's around, the more of a cult following it has. And I think when you talk about trying to copy someone, that's usually when things don't go well. You try and copy Tim Curry, you're probably not going to live up to what people are expecting. Right. But if you take a chance and you make them love you for who you are, oh my God, we'll love you forever. Absolutely. And it and it reads so much better because – it doesn't then you're not disappointed because you're not expecting this other thing that you're familiar with. You're like, oh, this is new. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It makes you see a different side of the character you never saw before. Absolutely. Where is something in like so like a couple other smaller musicals that we're gonna talk about. Um, like there's a reanimator musical that a fan from Twitter brought to my attention, um, from the 85 film. It was adapted for the stage in 2011. Had a short-lived run in California. Those costumes are pretty similar. Um, those are also, I found, not hard to – I mean, there, it's a lot of lab coats. It's a lot of 80s wear. But then something like the Evil Dead musical where if, so far every projection photo and clip I have found, you're getting – classic ash you're getting Mm -hmm. ash with the denim shirt and the khaki pants and the chainsaw for the arm and i think that is where it works yeah that's where it works because your zombies your deadites behind you can be so ridiculous can be so over the top but ash is still that little nugget and evil dead itself is still pretty campy the first one i don't think wasn't intended to be campy but they realized what they had and then the subsequent sequels they were just like well fuck it (laughs) i just i'm thankful that that's how this (laughs) this ended up but i think that's a great i was thinking about that when we had talked about this originally we had talked about adam's family briefly earlier like you can't i've designed that show and as much as i love the adam's family it is a really hard show to have fun with like you know you have to do certain things with Morticia. If Wednesday doesn't look a certain way, like you're not gonna, it's not gonna go well. Right. If Pugsley doesn't look a certain way, Gomez, you have a little, a little tiny bit more freedom in his clothing, not in his stylization. Right. Um, same with Lurch. Lurch, he's pretty much on the T. I had so much fun though with grandma because she is not consistent in any adaptation and she's just wackadoodle. Yeah. (laughs) She's just, she's the best. And then in the musical, again, if you've never seen it or never listened to it, it's, it's, it's lovely. It's odd. And if don't, don't look for bootlegs, but if you can find a bootleg (laughs) of the original Broadway cast, I've heard the, I never saw it on tour. I saw it in New York. Um, the 
talk about puppetry. The puppetry is was worth paying the ticket price for. Just kiss. Gorgeous. <laughs> um, but there are ancestors that they call upon to help guide the story. And those are really where you have the fun with it because they are not canon. They are not really something in any other Adams family. And they're hard because they have to be all white. It, that, right. That's kind of been a thing at this point. But you can do so much with them. Right, because they can have their own personalized characterizations, even yeah. though they're all white. You can have an all white, say, cheerleader. You can have an all white, you know, scientist. You can have an all white, whatever. Caveman. Caveman. I love caveman. that. Um. <laughs> and we do see that, I mean, consistently through. So the cartoon first came out in 38. Then you have the, the TV show in 64. You have the three films in the 90s, which are most of us have grown up on. And those are Jen's favorites. <laughs> and then in 07 was the stage musical. And the like Jen was just saying is that the family has stayed pretty consistent even from that first cartoon. I mean, as soon as Morticia comes up from the sewer, she's in that black <laughs> long sleeve dress with the train. Even though, right, Morticia, the moment she comes out, like she is who she is. Right. Versus when you're looking at the 90s films, you're looking at Raul Julia, you're looking at Tim Curry. He, it's, he is a silhouette that he remains true to, but you have a slightly different color palette. You can play with things like smoking jackets or hit like suit jacket, but you know he's going to be in a jacket. He's always going to look pristine. Um, so I feel like that's where you have a little more fun with color and jewel tones and things like that. So I'm really curious to see what they do with the new Wednesday series on Netflix. I mean, it's Tim Burton, so I have enough confidence. I'm one of those people that like, I love Tim Burton. I've loved him since the 80s, since his like weird cartoon work. So, and I went to the his exhibition at the MoMA twice in high school. I went like two separate occasions and I love him deeply. So I feel like we have very different feelings on this. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm very excited. I feel like I my only hope is that it does not turn into an Alice in Wonderland yes. CGI fest, which is I Alice in Wonderland, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which I I both like enjoy now. Yeah. But I would love to see more like Edward Scissorhands feeling come back, a little more of that yeah. craft that he's had. Obviously, I love him because right. people juice. <laughs> yeah. The the newer CGI movies, they do hit a little bit lower on the scale for me because okay. I am not a huge fan of – now, that is not to say that computer-generized images, it, they take a lot of work and the people who are there creating them, that is a great job. I am a very practical person because my job pretty much hasn't changed in the last 100 years. Like, I will always have a sewing machine and fabric in front of me. So there's not much you can do. And when digitalized editing came in, I got mad at it because it did ruin a lot of costuming. It ruined a lot of sets because not just for the fact of like actors are standing in front of a green screen, but in cases like the the new Beauty and the Beast movie that came out with Emma Watson, it was digitally altered and you couldn't see the detail in the costuming because it was just a wash. So when you film things on film or when you film things digitally but don't tweak things in the oversaturated way that a lot of films are are done in that like Dis – I, I want to call it a Disney gloss because that's where you see it a lot, these like Marvel Disney glosses over these films, you lose so much detail. Yeah. I feel like as a lover of <clears throat> animation – and a lover of film in general, 
I I agree with you. Like I I don't want anyone to think that I don't value CGI in all of its glory, but I do think that we have gotten away from and that's when we talk talk about we're almost in the renaissance of puppetry right now. Right. There is it's a very fine line to balance how much puppetry they use versus CGI. And I actually found out recently, and it kind of makes me like the recent Charlie and the Chocolate Factory a little bit more. Okay. Which I like secretly love. So everyone does know that. Um, oh my gosh, names today. The man who plays the Oompa Loompas. Oh, yes. It's one guy, it, Deep Roy. Did you know? I always assumed that they were all tiny little CGI figures of him. They're all puppets. Why? I didn't they're know all that. Pu- they're all puppets. That's it's crazy. Insane. So, and that's what's so funny to me about Tim Burton films is the detail that they'll they'll go into yeah. and have things like th- that puppetry. But, and that's, I think with him, it was more of a style choice than it was a practicality. And I think about um, Helena Bonham Carter in Alice in Wonderland and like the CGIing of the shape of her body, mm-hmm. where I would just rather see her or just see like a fabricated right. piece. Yeah. Wednesday should be. Wednesday, fingers crossed, it's yeah. going to be beautiful. I have hope. I'm hoping. I haven't seen the new Dumbo, and I know he did that. And I okay. want to see it. I've heard mixed things about it, but I heard the Arcade Fire did the music, and he did okay. the movie. So I was like, oh, two of my favorite people. I haven't seen it yet. I, the Disney remakes, I'm very like. To be fair, I haven't seen the original Dumbo. I'm. This is where Jen and I differ. I have barely seen any Disney movies, even though we both worked for Disney, and she's seen every one of them eight times over. I think there's three original animated <laughs> films that I haven't seen, and even like the obscure ones, like Saludos Amigos and The Three Caballeros, are like my favorite. I burnt the tapes out as a child. Like, I can tell you the history. You want to talk about Joe and I will have a separate podcast, and we'll talk about the Tiki Room. I could talk about that for oh hours. My God. <laughs> I, I do know a lot about the parks. I will say that. I know a lot about the parks. It's the movies that I don't know a lot about. Oh, but they intertwine. I know they intertwine. And I was definitely the black sheep at Disney when people were like, so what's your favorite Disney movie? And I was like, well, I watched Cinderella and I watched Mary Poppins. And that was about it growing up until well, Pixar happened. <laughs> see, I have to categorize them. <laughs> we have to talk about what's your favorite non-princess film. Right. Hunchback of Notre Dame because, come on. Or- Which is a horror bl- film. Horror movie, movie musical. I was going to say, because, of course, or The Black Cauldron, because (laughs) also, uh, you have to talk about your favorite white princess, because this is a very specific gap, and then (laughs) your favorite non-white princess, which honestly is all of them, so... The white ones all look alike. (laughs) Oh, but I love Snow White. Like, people hate on her so much. She's my... So if I worked at the Disney store, I've played this game many nights in the when I can't sleep and it's 2 a.m. If I worked at the Disney store, what would my name tag say as my favorite character? Because I'm really not sure. <laughs> See, when you work at the Disney parks, you don't have to worry about that. You just have to – you just have the name tag. You don't have to worry about where you're from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where am I from? <laughs> and what language do I speak? Questionable. <laughs> Which when we worked behind the scenes at Disney too, so I had this like nice – ASL language badge. I was like ready to talk to people. Never used it because I didn't have to interact with guests. But but speaking of Tim Burton and this oversaturization of, you know, CGI, let's talk about Sweeney Todd because it came from a penny dreadful, which 
Penny Dreadfuls were these short little stories in the 19th century. So back, hearkening back to those gothic novels that we were talking about at the beginning, and mm-hmm. it's from this story called A String of Pearls, which I need to find this original story because I would like to read it. And then it was adapted for the stage straight away into musical form in 1973. There was some like Penny Dreadful recreation stage plays that they did before that, um, but you didn't see them a lot in the mid 20th century. Then it was just 73 musical and Angela Lansbury. I was going to say, you want to yeah. go Tim Burton and Disney into horror. Let's oh just my God. Then do is, it. I love her so much. And so they did film an adaptation of, oh, sorry, the stage adaptation was in 73. The musical was in 79. And that was the one with Angela Lansbury. And they filmed that stage musical from 79 and released it in like the 80s sometime but then the one that everybody knows is the 2007 Tim Burton film which I can't believe that it it's been that long since that movie came out I saw that movie in theaters I saw that movie in theaters <laughs> I'm pretty sure half of my interns right now weren't alive when that came out in theaters yeah. they go who <laughs> um <laughs> I remember seeing that in theaters with my best friend at the time who I, I don't know what I did to convince her to see that because she hated musicals. <laughs> she hated theater. She, I'm pretty sure, hated Johnny Depp. And I begged and pleaded her. She was like, okay, whatever. Try and convince me that this is right. something I'm into. And I remember at the end of that film, the credits running and me just being like, that was the most beautiful, I mean, 17-year-old Jen being like this was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen like this was amazing and my my best friend being like what the heck did you just take <laughs> she was like they were killing people yeah. this what ha- that blood was like red not even wow. like like stop sign red oh was, yeah that was a choice that was a, a magical choice it made me feel less grossed out <laughs> oh yeah I really loved that movie I remember 07 was like from like 07 to to 2010 was like the 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 re-emerging of Tim Burton because that's when we got this we got Alice in Wonderland I just remember going to see him constantly in the movies and the only note yes Bride was in that time boyfriend because before this but that was 2003 yeah but it's still beautiful still yes yes which is also a musical stage adaptation but it's not spooky enough so we're not talking about it but john august who is an incredible writer who wrote the screenplay also did the the play of it and he has a great podcast too called script notes and you should check it out (laughs) yes he's magical and you should read his books yeah joe and i are big are big fans i love our i one thing i love about and again this might be a an unpopular opinion. I'm not really sure. I think it depends on if you're talking to theater people or non-theater people. So many people, I remember when Sweeney Todd came out and Johnny Depp was like, listen, I'm not a singer. Please don't judge me on this. Like this is going to be, this is kind of how I felt when Disney announced Han Solo and they were like, hey, listen, (laughs) we cast the wrong man as Han Solo. We're sorry. And you were (laughs) set up for failure and then you went to go see it and you were like that was amazing i expected the lowest of the low i thought he did a great job i love i'm not i'm definitely not sold on helena okay 
Um, I love Johnny Depp so much, I but you too. know who my favorite person is. Alan Rickman's in the movie too. He's the evil. Oh, Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman is wonderful. He is not my favorite character though. We could play yeah. a game here. <laughs> who plays Borat? Oh, Sasha Baron Cohen. Oh my God. Sasha Baron Cohen is the yeah. highlight, in my opinion, of that film. <laughs> okay, so when he is not Borat, I forget what he looks like. So I never recognize him in things. But yes, he's incredible in that movie. Oh my gosh. Like I just wish my only note for that movie was I wish that the scenery wasn't so dark. I understand that it's gritty, dirty London, but like I cannot – I have a hard time seeing movies as they are. And like I feel like it was just so hard to visually see. But other than that, it was great. I get that. And I think that's why I love his character so much and yeah. I why I love the color choice for the blood so much because right. they both pop so vividly. Right. My biggest problem is that the child. Joanna. No, the um Oh, the little boy. The little boy Toby. Yes. I really prefer have you ever seen it on stage? Mm-mm. I've never seen it on stage. So the the uh, I've seen it. I'm going to say five or six times on stage. And it's usually played by a gentleman, not by a child. Toby is played, not it. And I love this feeling that Toby is quite not up to speed with things. He has the mind of a child, but he has the strength of a man. Okay. And it, it adds such a different layer. And I think the film was the first time that I saw Toby as a little boy. And I was very confused. Yeah. Like, Huh. I never really thought about it this way. So that was my biggest thing with the movie. Right. Which is an which is an odd thing. But yeah. But if you if you've never seen that stage play, then it's to, it's a totally different experience for you and then you won't know what you're missing with that. This is true. I'm I'm yeah. a very big stage versus <laughs> Oh, I am too. I am too. And for those of you out there that aren't or didn't grow up theater kids, um, there is a moment in your late teens when and I can't speak for all theater children, but I can speak for the two women in the room and um, some of my other theater friends where you go through this phase of like, I'm a teenager. I need brooding musicals. So you start listening to things like Rent and Sweeney Todd and Hair. And you're like, I'm an avant-garde theater student. When these these are big musicals, but just because they're not – or Godspell or like all these things, when they're just not like – Oklahoma or you know like showboat or something see what I thought you were gonna say was when you're a teenager and you're like I've listened to the original Broadway cast oh that's you and then I've seen the film version yeah and how how dare they how dare hairspray cast John Travolta trying to be a woman (laughs) when you could have had like it just (laughs) yep yep or, or like when you saw the Rent movie for the first time, and you're like, oh, it's not a true opera like the stage musical is. <laughs> but this, but Sweeney Todd and Phantom of the Opera, we could say Repo, the genetic opera, because that came out in 08. So this is around this time, too, of these like dark, broody emo musicals. Um, yeah. Are the only ones on our list that are these straight. Repo is definitely funny, but it's not intended to be funny. Oh, man. We can talk about Reba because it has the same feel. It has the same like um, wash of these color palettes, which are, I mean, we were 
we were noting on, but they were totally intentional. Like Jen was saying with the, you know, even though it is hard to see, they're totally intentional because once you have that blood come up on that screen. Gosh, repo. Okay. Well, I'm not at a point. Well, I guess I mean we've seen blood in Repo because he's been taking right. things out. Because remember, everyone, I'm halfway through the movie. Anthony Stewart Head is incredible. I love him so much. So far, I love I love the cast. I think the funniest thing to me about Repo, two things. Um, the like what we would now equivalent equip yeah, with a Snapchat filter over the whole film. <laughs> yeah. Like, why am I, why did you put something on top of the lens to shoot this? Like, why is the whole thing so blurry, I guess? Because it's 2008 and Evanescence, Bring Me to Life, and the Welcome to the Black Parade album came out that year. So it's emo time. This was like an emo kid music. The first time I watched this musical, I was like, this was written by Warped Tour Kids. Now that you've said Evanescence, <laughs> that's, that's all I see. That's all I see, yeah. Uh, this is not something I'm so sorry for anyone who disagrees with me and you can convince me different. Um, <laughs> I'm not on Twitter. I'm looking for a handle so you can all convince me different of this. <laughs> I do not feel like Repo has aged very well as a first time watcher. <laughs> no, it has not. It has not. <laughs> Turning it on, I was like, oh, wow, I'm in my high school graduation again. Like I can, <laughs> I can pull these outfits out of my closet yep. visually in my memory. It, it's just funny, like, thinking about things like Repo and Phantom being produced at the same time, how different they are. Yes. Yes. So uh, uh, Phantom of the Opera was obviously first the silent film in 1925 with Lon Chaney. That was his first role where he, he became the man of a thousand faces of what we know him today. And then it went to the stage in 1986 written by Andrew Lloyd Webber. So the original was not a musical. They adapted it into a musical. So here we go again. The Man of a Thousand Fever Dreams, (laughs) (laughs) Andrew Lloyd Webber. (laughs) And what has stayed consistent is the mask and the idea. But the stage musical is so much more romantic than the original silent film. The original silent film is a straight up horror film of this man who abducts this poor woman from the opera house. And the other one, he's still doing the same thing, but he's doing it in like a more romantic way where you're kind of like, oh, I wish somebody would steal me and teach me how to sing through the mirror. And let me tell you, 11-year-old me, when Broadway tickets were were inexpensive, I used to see – a lot of Broadway shows. I had the privilege of growing right up right outside New York City. And we went for my 11th birthday to go see Phantom of the Opera. And we were in the second row. And we watched the Conductor Eat Cookies pre-show, which I thought was funny. And the moment when the chandelier swings out over the audience and comes up, my little 11-year-old brain, I think I, I, think I cried at 11 years old. Like, I was just like, <gasps> oh, my God. And the masquerade scene and the scene with the mirror where the mirror drops. And i that was like my first introduction to stage tricks. I was like, what? It blew my mind. And it's so beautiful. And I, I always want to sing like Christine. And I, unfortunately, I'm not a singer. <laughs> so Emmy Rossum did an amazing job. And Gerard Butler did an amazing job in the film. And I'm pretty sure I saw it in, in movie theaters when it came out. Uh, Gerard Butler is. And then to go three years funny. later into 300, I didn't realize it was the same person. <laughs> But also, P.S. I love you. Yes. Like, come on. Yes. Um, I don't think I saw Phantom of the Opera until several years after it came out. Okay. Um, I have worked with several of the original designers mm. from the show, and it was never like, I don't know. I am not a musical opera person. Like, I'm not, I don't know. 
I've never seen Les Mis. I, oh, I don't care to see I don't Les, like Mis. Les Mis. That's an unpopular opinion. <laughs> I do not like Les Mis. I haven't seen Phantom <laughs> on Broadway, and I'm kind of at a point where, like, unless someone gives me tickets, I'm probably not going to see it. But I worked with several people, saw the film, and I don't know. Like, I don't want to love it, but I feel like you can't not. And the Phantom, he's supposed to be the bad guy. Right, but you feel people, bad for him? As people tell me, right. but I lo- like, he is the person that I feel the most for in right. that in that film. It's definitely following the formula of those classic universal monsters where the monster isn't the monster, right? Like, he is the one that we are empathizing with. He is the one that we feel for, like Frankenstein, like the creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. Like, Let's just quote yeah. Hunchback of Notre Dame, who is the monster and who is the man. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Just wonderful film. But it's funny because I'm going to switch gears and I know Joe hasn't seen this yet and I watched it for this podcast. So I hope you yeah. all appreciate it. Yes, which was a Twitter request. And I hadn't gotten to see it because I'm also working on a short film right now. So, But Jen – had the pleasure of seeing this for us. I mean, that's fine. I'm in my in my my master's, but <laughs> I have no excuses then. <laughs> um, <laughs> while I feel so bad for the Phantom and the Phantom of the Opera, I really, I really hope no one <laughs> hates me for this. I don't think I felt bad for the Phantom in Phantom of the Paradise, <laughs> <laughs> which. Everybody on Twitter, so many people came back to us with Phantom of the Paradise. And then I was seeing it everywhere on Twitter, like after that. And I was like, what is this movie? So please walk us through Phantom of the Paradise. So this is a film only, like Repo is film only, no stage. Phantom of the Paradise is film only from 1974. Whoever suggested it, to all of you who suggested it, thank you for telling Joe about it because this is now a one of my top cult films <laughs> after the first <laughs> viewing. I said to her, I had class last night. Class ended at 10.15. I couldn't sleep because I get really hype after class. And I was like, let's watch Phantom of the Paradise. It's fine. Like, whatever. I'll be up until midnight. First half of the film, I had, I don't want to say no idea what was happening. <laughs> but I was like, this pacing is a little, feels a little off. Like, I don't get it. This sounds like Phantom of the Opera, but it's not Phantom of the Opera. And then... When they got to the actual paradise. Oh, see, I don't want to spoil it for you, Joe. Oh, gosh. Okay, all right. So we'll just say that the – well, so the costumes. Let's talk about costumes then. The co- well, I, I didn't want to – I don't want to talk about the ending because you haven't seen it. But right. the costumes, when they get to the paradise, beef. His character is really what sold the film to me. Okay. His characterization. Like, his character is just a riot in general. And then – when they do this stage production, I guess, because I thought it was supposed to be a concert, but then it was an opera. <laughs> um, <laughs> they get on stage and the costumes in this stage production that's produced by this rock company are amazing. Like they're, they're beautiful. Okay. I, I don't know what it is because they're so simplistic, but they read so well on screen and Beef's costume where he comes out in like this blood red ripped up number and he's got like a slit throat and slits on his arms and a slit across his stomach. It just like I couldn't tell if it was glitter or beaded or just shiny stage blood. It I don't know why it was so magical. And then the th- there's three storytellers, I guess. Again, 
y'all, this is my first time seeing it, so I apologize. <laughs> um, they have this black and white makeup that to me felt, I, I don't know why, but it felt very like plague doctor. Hmm. So black and white makeup where all of the black shadow looks like lights coming down on them on one side, but it's so graphic and it's so 70s in such a good way. Because the 70s, I, uh, I forget who the quote is from, but they said the 70s is the decade that fashion forgot. Yes, which, it absolutely <laughs> is. Yes. And it's like, it is in such a good and such a bad way. And this film was the good way. I love that. The phantom costume, though, I want to redesign. So 70s musicals are super interesting because once you leave the 1960s, this like shiny ta- song and dance type musical that America was known for throughout the 40s, throughout the 30s, this like golden age of Broadway, you get into a lot of experimental stuff. And that was really what was reflecting the music of the time too. And I actually really love late 60s, early 70s musicals. I love hair. I don't think anybody should ever do hair because I've seen so many freaking college productions of hair where they don't understand hair because we're not living in the 60s. We're not living through the Vietnam War. So many of them think that like this this false hippie culture, which I definitely probably was a hippie in my past life because I'm so protective of this like hippie culture from the the 60s and the 70s <laughs> that nobody can get right. But then you have all these like weird, they were playing with camera filters. They were playing with like surrealism. Um, you have Tommy, which is just like a fever dream of a yep. musical. You have Godspell, which is it's like this weird – it's biblical, but it's not biblical. It's very experimental. Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar, like, yeah. Like all very like rock experimental musicals that when you listen to them now, they're not as rock as like the rock of the day as like a – you know, the only musical I would say that was a really rock musical that I was like, yeah, that's rock music that I could listen to by itself was Spring Awakening and Once because those are written by rock musicians. Mm, rock of Ages. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, like, that's because that's a jukebox music. Actual rock. <laughs> right, actual right, right. Music. I, like, I know I, I, I completely agree. It's almost like the rock musical right. is the rock of musical theater. And I just, and this, this fits into that like gritty, surreal 70s. Let me tell you, I, I really, I'll probably watch it again tonight because <laughs> like Rocky Horror, the first time I saw it and I went, what did I just watch? It really, I, that's why the 70s were so great. Yeah. Because of that pushing things forward and because they went against the, this is Roger and Hammerstein and this is the exact layout, the exact formula you're going to follow. Phantom of the Paradise, I had no idea what was happening at any moment. And every every scene was a new turn and a new jar. And I loved it because I couldn't, I didn't know where I was going. I love that. It. I, I definitely described it as a fever dream. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love a good fever dream, though. Honestly, like, and so those kind of musicals, I find that when you adapt them and you do revivals of them, there isn't a one-size-fits-all for the costuming, for the designer. So you really can have fun. You can, like, go and just be big or be as small as you want. And, I mean, that's, I mean, that's what is so beautiful about – Film is a beautiful medium too, but the the theater as a medium, you can play every time and you can, I mean, I've done 
Shakespeare modern. I've done Shakespeare Elizabethan. I've done modern stuff as, you know, I mean, like just Samuel Beckett is a perfect example of just Mm -hmm. pushing the envelope constantly. I mean, he has, and you can see his stuff on, he has filmed his plays and then you can see his plays. And there are some where people, there's one where two characters are just sitting in a garbage can and you could do that on stage or you could do it not you could do it not in that way so that is what makes theater so fluid and adaptable in a way that film can't be because once you film it that's it yeah i think again to go back to rocky horror because this should have just been a rocky horror discussion (laughs) Uh, (laughs) that was one of the things that was so cool about when we did it on stage is i will never not love the film because i will always love tim curry more than anyone else on earth but Doing it on stage, when someone does a call out, people on stage can react. Yes. And every time you see that show, it's going to be different. It doesn't, even if there aren't call outs, if you're seeing Evil Dead, if you're seeing Cats, if you're seeing Carousel, (laughs) (laughs) the reactions are organic every night and it's not a preset thing. And that's one of the things I love about theater. Again, we've talked about why we love film so much, but film, you get your lines, you rehearse your lines a few times and you go through it. You're not memorizing pages upon pages upon pages. And every night you're learning something new about this person that you're playing and you're getting these different sides and different feelings from each other, even based on what's happened to you outside of the theater that day. Absolutely. Ugh, I just, it's so one of my favorite things when we did Rocky Horror in New Hope that I only did with uh, one of our actors, Kevin. I had never seen anyone else do it, but in I'm Coming Home, I'm Going Home, <clears throat> we had a riff that would happen and Frank would just start talking to the audience. And I had worked with performers who didn't know New Hope very well or whatever. And they would interact with the people very briefly. Like, oh, hello, you. And they would dance or whatever. Kevin, every night, would tell a story about New Hope. Would tell a story about, this is where we are. Think about all of the great people who've been here. Grace Kelly, Dick Van Dyke, Angela Lansbury, Jessica Walter. Rest in peace, my love the people that have been on these boards and been in this place and we are now in the same place. And it took you, it connected you as humans in this moment, in the story, and it made you part of it. And it's just, it's so special because now it's yours. It's your memory versus watching someone, something someone's been through. Absolutely. Yeah. And it definitely gives you a different sense of space. Like, like I, I was saying before, I've seen a lot of musicals growing up and plays too. And I, I grew up going to Broadway. I grew up a theater kid. Um, I started acting when I was 11 years old. But what, even though I had prior to you know getting into this business, I was still seeing theater. And it wasn't until I saw Wicked for the first time and the dragon just – and I've seen that show four times. That is my favorite musical. <laughs> Um, you know, and the dragon starts and I was fortunate to see the original cast and I'm, I'm blessed and so lucky that when Christian Chenoweth came out on that bubble, like space for me dissolved and I was, 
I was with them in this story and in this very familiar world of Oz that I grew up loving and obsessing over. And then all of a sudden, like, I just, I, it's like I knew, like, this is, this is how I want to tell stories. Like this, mm-hmm. it just gives you chills to, to, to work on that magnitude and to work in that scale. Yeah. I remember I grew up in Philly, so a little farther from New York, but also very fortunate to be within that close to the theater scene and seeing Beauty and the Beast as a 10 year old. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I, it's definitely a memory that I treasure very, it's very special. And I remember seeing the show and being so enamored with it. My mom bought me the soundtrack and we got on a bus to go back to Philly. We were with the Girl Scout troop. And everyone else was talking about like, oh, well, we went to Ellis Island and no, we did this and that. And I had my headphones on like a geek just listening to the soundtrack and reliving every moment that had just happened in the show. It it really is such a – it's so special. It is, yeah. It is. And I another thing too as a theater kid, I, I had a girl that I worked with at Disney who used to say, as theater kids, do you remember actually learning the time warp? Or are we just born knowing the time warp? <laughs> and that's something I think about often because I actually don't remember when I learned to do the time warp. I just I just knew it. I think the only time I like quote unquote learned the time warp was at Bucks when they did like their own version of it. And I learned our version, but I do I think it I think I was doing it out of the birth canal, the time warp. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> So switching gears a little bit, because Jen and I could get really sentimental about theater all day, and we miss it terribly. So uh, I want to talk about one of your favorite movies. One of this, I had to watch this movie for a scene in my acting classes. Clearly, my acting career did not last, but that's fine, because I love costuming. Um, So I've only seen this film a couple of times, but I am obsessed with this musical, and it is called Silence. So it is based off of the 1991 film Silence of the Lambs. So when we think of that movie, obviously scary, it's dark, um, it won the Oscar, yay. But the costuming is very plain, but it's just, it is so beautiful as a film. I was going to say, again, this is, are you supposed to not like Hannibal Lecter? Because I'm pretty sure he's the hero of that film. <laughs> he just wanted a nice bottle of Chianti. <laughs> That's all he wanted. That's all I want. We got I will say though, having seen that movie and then my boyfriend at the beginning of quarantine, well, it was more of like the summer-ish, I got in Hannibal because that is his favorite show. And Ugh. I am obsessed with Hannibal. It is beautiful. I have not watched it yet. A a, a friend from Disney yeah. told me that I need to watch it and I I don't think it was available anywhere to stream. Okay. It's on Netflix now. Um as my Boss recently told me when I started talking about Silence of the Lambs and my 50 to 60, I'm not quite sure, old Israeli boss went, that's a great film. You've never seen the TV show? I'm like, you know what that is? (laughs) I'm confused. Um, It is, I'm not going to say by far because Joe knows that The Shining by far is my favorite film, not even horror film, just film in general. Silence of the Lambs is a very, very, very close second. It's so smart. It's funny in ways that you don't expect it to be. It The first time I saw it, spoiler alert again, if you haven't seen it, <laughs> skip a few minutes ahead, maybe more than two because I'll talk about it all day. When 
Clarice is in the basement with Buffalo Bill and the lights go out and he has those night vision goggles on. The first time I saw it, I couldn't breathe. Yeah. Like it's it's so smart on so many levels. The have you seen the have you seen the other two films? No, I have not. And I actually now that I've watched Hannibal, I want to go back and reread the books and then go and follow the movie chronically. Chronologically. Okay. I've never seen. I've never read the book, so they need to be on my list. Yeah, my ever growing list. I know Hannibal. I have to say is I think now that I've seen Red Dragon is my least favorite of the three. Okay, I think it's very good. I think it has a very different tone. Red Dragon, which also has a very different tone, is just even as a standalone film is fantastic. Um, I have never seen Silence the Musical. Joe is the one who put me on to it. <laughs> and I have listened to the soundtrack numerous times. And I'm waiting for the day that someone lets me costume design it. Anyone? Bueller? Bueller. <laughs> it It is just so this was it came to the stage in 2005. I saw it. I think it was about 2012 is when I saw it. No, it had to no, I think it was 2013 is when I saw it. Um I it is. It was first of all. It was in the theater in Times Square. So it's. It was technically on Broadway, but it was off Broadway because of the theater size. It was in a the twenty four hour three sixty five haunted house building, and upstairs there is a tiny bar and a little theater. <laughs> and I was in the second row, and I was with. Um, I went with my two cousins who are uber conservative, and I don't think they realized what they were getting themselves into. Basically, the the musical, let me set the stage for you. Um, Lights go down. Curtain goes up. We see two little lamb hooves come out of the wings and do a little tap tap, a little little tap. And And then the chorus of humans in all black with lamb hooves on their feet and lamb ears on come out and start singing this is the silence of the lambs tap 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 and i was like i'm here for this this is amazing and it is it is clearly a mockery musical with um such hits as if i could smell her cunt which is a lovely ballet number with lots of uh crotch kicks to the audience and then the buffalo bill number Complete with flashing, and I think this is where my cousins were un- uh, uninterested up until this point and completely disengaged <laughs> when Buffalo Bill flashed the audience to the tango number, I'd Fuck Me. It is my favorite musical number to sing <laughs> to people. Yes. And when I pick up costumes backstage, I always tell my performers, put the costume in the basket, and then I tell them, and then my brain goes to put the fucking lotion in the basket, and then I start to sing the song. Put the fucking lotion in the basket. <laughs> See, I feel like this story is a prime example of where reading the script is ex- like the show I did last yeah. year. The same. You can't, there are certain things you don't get from just listening to the soundtrack. Right. I don't think I realized that the opening number to that, they were all dressed as lambs. <laughs> Makes it even better <laughs> but cheap lambs just lamb hooves and the little ears they look like shrek ears like a little headband so just just like my show last yeah. year <laughs> <laughs> yeah um if this ever opens if anybody is listening that has been involved in the production wants to reopen it and hire jen and myself uh we want to bring this to the masses it is incredible i had a musical theater history class in college 
and everybody else was doing like, you know, because I was with the musical theater majors in college and I was like the one tech student in this class. And everybody else was doing like Grey Gardens and, you know, Chicago and like the history. And I was like, silence. And I brought in the playbill, which was a newspaper. And the 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 cover art, if you have the chance to find it or Google it, is the same moth from the Silence of the Lambs, you know, cover, except the eyes are crossed because they're looking <laughs> It is it is just brilliant. I mean, this is a case of like amazing writing, amazing cast for the timing, amazing costuming because there is a Hannibal Lecter um, jumpsuit and then there is the ballet sparkly prison jumpsuit version. <laughs> it is it's just fantastic. I cannot speak more highly about this musical and everybody in my class looked at me like I had eight heads. And then I played them the songs and they were sold. And I was like, somebody needs to do this musical now because I want to costume this. Okay. But the person who did Great Gardens looked at you like they were crazy. Like you were crazy. I love Let's Gardens. be real. I know. My top five musicals to do include Great Gardens and they are amongst such hits as Yada-da-da-da. Yeah. <laughs> I now want to do the documentary now musical version of Great Gardens with Fred Armisen and Bill Hader. <laughs> that's that's the correct choice. <laughs> <laughs> Horror adjacent. Right. <laughs> I took these sweatpants and I put them on my head. And look, you can you can put it around your neck like a scarf. God, okay, yeah, I could do a whole podcast about Doctor Renew now too. But silence the musical. Funny talking about musicals that people didn't know about mm-hmm. in this in this age group. Um, because I feel like Carrie the musical was that for me. I unfortunately have and I have a very weird connection not connection to this I've never seen it and I unfortunately have never heard the music to it me neither but, but um one I in college uh there was a group in Philly that did it that was all drag kings drag queens sorry all drag queens doing this performance why didn't I see it <laughs> was the year of the snowpocalypse. Oh, yeah. Um, so no one could go anywhere. But I also had a book. I, I don't remember off the top of my head what it's called, but it was about Broadway fails. Oh, yeah. The opening chapter was about Carrie the musical. And they talked very heavily about, and there's photo evidence of this, the shower scene of all of the women in the shower that came down from the ceiling (laughs) and how it closed in five days. So I know you have, uh, there were 16 preview performances and they closed five performances in. Uh, Apparently they knew opening night that it was closing, which is just amazing yeah. to me. I, I really wish there was a filmed version of this. I really do too. Because this, I didn't realize how old it was. Like I didn't realize that this was 88. I thought Carrie the Musical was a newer musical. But it's not. It was from 88. And nobody, I think some theaters have tried to redo it. Uh, but there has not been a Broadway revival. Because like... The film community um, and the Oscars and the Golden Go- Golden Globe community horror in even in musical form is still not looked at the same way as these other big productions. So I'm so so curious. So and and for those of you that aren't familiar, when you put up a show like what we were talking about before, um, before it goes to Broadway or you know that it's going to go to Broadway, you kind of workshop it in other cities. So how Jen saw Beetlejuice in DC. Um, A lot of shows do that in Seattle, which is great because then you get to see something, even though they're still working through it, 
um, you're working until opening night. So your previews are pre-opening night. So you're still performing in the theater, but you're performing for a very limited audience and you're performing for maybe critics, um, producers, different design people. It, think of it as like extra dress rehearsals almost. And you're changing stuff. And that was the issue. Everybody jokes about Spider-Man the musical, but that was what the issue with Spider-Man the musical was, was that you had film producers in the Broadway seats like they were doing a film screening and changing things so quickly and so rapidly. Mm-hmm. And they didn't realize that the turnaround time it's not like editing a film where you show a screening and you take things in or out. These are people, human people that have to rehearse. They have to practice, especially with stunts. Um, and that's where all of the issues with that musical came with from. But for this one, it had 16 previews. And then opening night, when a show opens, you stop working. So no changes can be made. So that's why they always say that Rent is technically an unfinished musical because Jonathan Larson died before opening night. So nobody has made changes to it because you because he's not there and the parents didn't want the changes and stuff like that. So that's kind of the process of, of opening up a show. So it really only had five real performances in front of a real ticket-paying audience. And then it closed. <laughs> just glorious. Which is just so tragic because the 74 book is amazing. Obviously, Stephen King is an incredible writer. And then the film in 76 with Sissy Spacek is like, oh, my God. Obviously classic. It's classic. And it's the gateway film that gets a lot of people into the horror genre. I mean, good for her. Yeah. <laughs> it is amazing to me that no major theater has revived this, that it has kind of remained a cult classic mm-hmm. amongst these smaller community theaters but i love that it has lived on for this long that people are still yeah doing it and that's i mean it's funny though to think about this is not at all horror related but talking about musicals that flopped that closed within i think a flop is even considered within the first six months yeah um but i feel like everyone knows susical the musical right and that's considered a flop that closed very very early on but then you see how like yes it closed on broadway but it's so popular and it's done so often so it's funny that a short broadway run can be considered a a flop for something right but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not going to give the show itself longevity in regional theater, in community theater, in high schools, middle schools, and so on. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, when we were talking about um, uh, Sweeney Todd, I actually wanted to share that I read – did you read this? A few years back, there was a high school in New Zealand that was doing Sweeney Todd. And and this is why – oof. always, you, if it's not your prop, don't touch it. It's mm-hmm. a huge freaking rule. Somebody, as a joke, as kind of a little dark, switched – the blades and nobody died but when the kid was performing the cut um the stage blood happened but then he got cut for real because some kid just wanted to play a funny joke and i that's not funny at all it's so it's so hard doing that show yeah um because i i was thinking about this that's another show that i've designed previously and we did it's such a sensitive topic especially with younger audiences and i did a high school worked with a high school group and did it. So we didn't use any real blood. Mm. Um, So all of our knives were taped and like not sharp. So nothing could happen, but all of our blood was fabric. So that way there was no mistake and it was very far from people's necks and you ripped fabric off instead of it just, it's that's, I don't think I'd heard about the New Zealand thing, but that's kind of. Yeah. 
worrisome. Yeah. And that, and I mean, that's the issue. That's the other issue with live theater because we hear about these things happening. I mean, the, the prime example is is what happened to um, – from uh, In the Crow where with that tragic, terrible accident. I had never seen the film, um, but basically the gun wasn't – They nobody checked the gun. The, the firearms person – and this is why unions get involved and this is why you have people triple and quadruple check and – there was an unfortunate accident of him being shot on set. But, you know, when you're working in live theater and you're working as quickly, and this is the downside of theater, is that you are working yourself to the bone. I mean, I would come home, I would make dinner for myself at one in the morning, I would get up and go to work again. And so you're at like 7 a.m. So your turnaround time is not very much and you're working tired. And because you're doing eight shows a week, as you do, um, People do get tired and sometimes and it's not uh, malicious carelessness, but sometimes things happen. And that's why you really have to be on your game in theater, because, I mean, people talk about this all the time. And like I, I my roommate, my former roommate was a stage crew member for King Kong and just how mm. on it you had to be when operating that puppet because that puppet was however many pounds and you have people on stage and if one thing malfunctions and something goes wrong the wrong way somebody can get really hurt and that's you know somebody getting hurt and then there's a whole audience of people so it's a lot harder to kind of stop and regroup um from there with that yeah well and I mean, even when you talk about shows like Phantom or Wicked or these shows that have been a lot around for Lion King, they've been around for years. And I mean, if you're like someone who's been in a show for the past 10 years and you're doing it eight times a week, I mean, hundreds of times you've been in the same show and right. you get bored. Yeah. And I mean, I've worked on shows that we've only done 45 of them before people start to get bored yeah. and that's when people get careless yeah when mistakes happen because you want to do something different but it, it, there is a separate precaution that comes into because it isn't a closed set it's not a concentrated group of people you now have an audience and people who are not under your insurance in the same way um, as you would be if it was just the crew and the cast exactly well okay so we have a few others that we were kind of we were given a few, um, like the reanimator one. One one of you guys on Twitter um, said the Wicker Man, which totally is – it wouldn't be under this um, category. Like we're saying it's definitely a musical adjacent. Have you seen the original Wicker Man from the 70s? I have, I have not. It's on my list. It is crazy, like pagan fever. Um, as a Scottish pagan, I do love this movie, not the murder, but I do love this movie because <laughs> you have this Catholic priest and not priest, Catholic cop who comes over from the mainland uh, and is investigating the murder of this little girl. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I won't give you any spoilers, but they're going through their, their Beltane, which is the fire festival in May. So their May Day celebration. Um, and he just keeps walking around the town and like hating all these pagans for like no reason other than the fact that they're not Catholic. And yeah. every time he turns around, somebody has a lute or a flute or something and they're just singing and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And it's the late Christopher Lee, whose birthday was, I think it's today. Today is his birthday and Vincent Price's birthday. Um, and it, it's just, it's fantastic. It is one of those movies though that like, because it's the 70s when, like, 
things go ablaze and there's livestock involved, I'm always t- like, oh my God, were these animals hurt in the filming of the movie? <laughs> like, were they really set ablaze? The sheep. They were fine. They were fine. <laughs> but yeah, so we got that one. Um, we've got Young Frankenstein on our list, which uh, it, that one is just I mean, that is a full-on Broadway musical. It was a 1974 Mel Brooks film. And then in 2007, came to the stage. I wish that I could have seen it because Megan Mullally was in it as Fabruja. Oh, my God. How can you not love Megan Mullally? And how can you not love names? Sutton Foster was also in it. Okay, so Megan Mullally, Sutton Foster, and then Roger Bart as Frankenstein himself. How can you get better no. Young Hercules. Let I mean, yeah. not musical horror. Uh, Stepford Wives, like Roger Bart, King Among Kings. I could not have a could not have a better choice than him. No, and there's Sutton Foster. There's that name again, and the importance of, uh, you know, if you're sick, power through it because the next Sutton Foster could be your understudy. <laughs> she's so great she's wonderful and mel brooks i know that was involved in that musical a lot like he did i think he did a lot of the writing with them and he worked with the composers and it it won a bunch of tonys that year too i believe too so well i think roger is also one of his i don't want to say one of his favorites but he was also in producers the musical right um so it's always fun to see how people cross in and out yeah as we go through these things. The last one on our list is Heathers, which a lot of people don't know it's a musical and it is a musical. And I found out about this musical a couple of years ago because I was working on a show in Florida. I was working on 1984 and the one woman who I was the child wrangler as well as the wardrobe supervisor. So I had to sit with the the child to make sure that she was not um, <laughs> affected by 1984 so I would sit in the dressing room with them when they would get ready. And the one actress, gosh, she loved Heathers. And she would put it on and she would say it. And she would get into it. And I love Chrissy. And she's amazing. A beautiful voice, too. And she was in Heathers. She was Heather Chandler. I've never seen the musical. I've listened to some of the songs. It's something I'm dying to do, though. Like, yes. talk about top musicals. That's one of them. Because how can you – like? The movie's already so campy, so to take it to an even more campy place, yes, as a in its musical form, that's something that's meant for us. And um, what's her name? Alice Lee was in the original off-Broadway production of Heather's, and she's now on Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist as Emily. And it was so funny to like watch clips and be like, "Wait, I think that's Emily," and it was. And she, yes, so she's one of the Heather's. That's how I felt looking up the cast to repo the genetic opera and looking at everyone who was in it is like, Oh my God. Yeah. That is, that is who I think that that's who I think it is. That's who. Okay. Well, the guy. Paris Hilton. Oh gosh. Paris Hilton. I, (laughs) I have mixed feelings about Paris Hilton and that's from that watching that American meme documentary. But, um, I think, I mean, she's just living. I think she's, I think she's sweet and I think she's just living her life and she just, I, I just love, like I was definitely like, in her heyday. Yeah. I was never sure how I felt about her. Yes. I was never like, I never watched their show. I never did anything. And I feel like as she's gotten older and I've gotten older, I've appreciated her a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, that just, if you haven't watched this season of RuPaul, um, got mixed portrayal of Paris Hilton in the Snatch Game. Fantastic. And kind of Paris coming on the show to talk. That's awesome. To, like, 
I feel like she has accepted this like yeah. campy version of herself. And that's how I thought about Repo when I realized it was her. I was like, okay, you know this portrayal and I love that you're giving into it. Like yeah. I love you're accepting this or playing into it. It was kind of wonderful. Yeah. And then the actor who plays her dad, whose name I can never remember, but always just call him Laura Palmer's dad. <laughs> Because he's from Twin Peaks. <laughs> <laughs> he was in. It's funny because I couldn't place him. He was in Goodfellas. And I was like, Ugh. Yes. Mob. Yes. That's why I know you. <laughs> yeah. And then um, we did have a request to talk about the musical episode of Buffy. Um, and I'll, I'll, so we'll, we'll honorable mention it because it's – because, again, Anthony Stewart Head is in that. He is classically trained as an actor. Um, he has musical experience because the way London and England does their theater programs or acting programs or um, – technical programs they focus on stage and screen whereas in america you can go to college for acting on for the stage technical theater for the stage theater or you can go into a film degree so their degrees in europe are more um because the countries are smaller and there it is more concentrated as to like film and theater is so close together in especially in london and where the studios are located um they have a like a combined degree so he has stage and screen training and that i have you seen that musical episode of buffy because it's pretty great i have not i've only seen the buffy film oh okay all right you need to i (laughs) highly recommend i love buffy as a series i've never seen the film so maybe we'll do a flip-flop we need to we need to swap because the film is so special paul rubens as a vampire do you need oh i'm sold i love peewee her i love paul (laughs) rubens and and there needs to be more, more Paul Rubens in more things. Yes, because he's lovely. He is so lovely. So we'll swap because I need to watch that and I need to – I feel like I need to revisit the original Charmed. I don't know why those okay. two go together in my mind. It was both like late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, I want to watch the Charmed reboot. So Oh, I didn't know they had a reboot. They do. Hmm. I couldn't watch Charmed because I – with the exception of Scream, and I know this is an unpopular opinion, I am not a big fan of Rose McGowan. Fair. I find that fair. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably actually – okay. Yeah, unpopular opinion. That's probably actually the only thing I like her in is Screamed. Yeah, and then she gets she gets killed halfway through it, so. <laughs> I feel like when I was into Charmed, it was pre-Rose McGowan. Okay. So, yeah. That might show my age, but that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. But <laughs> I do – I highly recommend watching Buffy – um it was in, it was definitely in the early 2000s era of every sitcom has a musical episode so like Sabrina the Teenage Witch had a musical episode which we love um love. Scrubs had a musical episode that 70s show had a musical episode like I love all of those musical episodes from early 2000s sitcoms um I love that you brought up Scrubs because that was the first one I thought of so yeah <laughs> I always think my brain always goes to um the, that 70s show one where they're singing the joker but they're sitting in the, the the high circle and then they do the camera shot up above and that's the only time you see the table with the paraphernalia on the table and they're like doing all these like arm moves it's great yeah magic but actually adjacent there is um a that 70s show episode that is fully alfred hitchcock themed where fez is in the uh rocky horror Frankenfurter costume because it's Halloween oh. and every segment is a different Hitchcock film. I did not know that. It's oh, it's so great. Like Kitty has to go next door to feed the neighbors birds and then she gets attacked by the birds. And then because Fez 
falls out the window and like breaks his, oh, no he breaks his leg in the heel or something like that because he's walking in the heels and he has to watch all of this happen from from Eric's window like rear window it's great <laughs> I this I'm calling it this is gonna be a future episode where we're just gonna talk about the horror episodes in all of these TV shows Boy Meets World yes <gasps> well Jen this has been an incredible discussion as always I mean this is what happens when I've known Jen now for four years, four or five years. Something like that. Where we literally, I think our first conversation was about The Shining book and movie. <laughs> and I probably was away from my cubicle a little bit longer than I needed to be. It's fine. It's fine. She has amazing stories <laughs> about theater, about people, about life. She has done some incredible things within her costuming career that her stories are as equally matched. <laughs> <laughs> she is the Hildy to my Zelda. This is how crazy we are. We're just crazy witches. She is the Hilda to my Zelda. And I love you, Zelda. I love you too, Hildy. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have any closing thoughts on any of our musicals? Oh, what closing? What closing thoughts do I have? If you have any others to recommend to us that we have not covered, I would love to hear them because I love camp. Um, I'm pretty sure my soul runs on it. What's the quote from the costume designer from the SpongeBob musical? Okay. If you want to talk about camp, (laughs) Google David Zinn. He has a lovely two or three minute YouTube clip talking about the music, the costumes from SpongeBob the musical, but there specifically is a moment where he talks about the backup dancers to Squidward's musical number where he says these are, and this is, I feel a direct call to who I am. These are chorus line meets Vegas showgirl meets Muppet. Yeah, and that's Jen in a in a full and complete So that's my closing thought on horror musicals: is please go look at SpongeBob the Musical, Davidson. Um, <laughs> this has been such a joy. I'm so. Sad that Emma could not join us. And I so look forward to coming back so the three of us can have a discussion together. But thank you so much just bringing me on. This has been a treasure. I treasure you. I treasure this experience. Let's let's do more. Yay. I know. And next time when we have Emma here and the three of us chat, she'll she'll keep us on the rails better. We need her. (laughs) Yes. She's gonna look at this recording time and be like, be like, oh, what? We did talk about almost 13, 14 musicals though, with with divergence, but you know, and a lot of other things. So we got a lot of topics. Yeah, we did. We got <laughs> we got to the point. <laughs> well, thank you as always for joining us. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at to die for podcast, and remember that is D Y E, and on Twitter at die podcast. And then the next time you go into your closet, remember that your pieces could also be to die for.